Let us turn together in these scriptures to the book of Acts, chapter 16, as we continue our readings and our expositions through the second half of the book of Acts, chapter 16, and reading only the short section this morning, verses 11 through 15, the story of the conversion of the businesswoman Lydia, the first recorded conversion to the Christian gospel in the continent of Europe as the apostle and his companions cross over from Asia Minor to the country of Greece. Lydia's conversion in Philippi, Acts 16, verse 11 through 15. From Troas, that is the ancient port of Troy, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city in that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. May God bless this very lovely portion of his own inspired word to the understanding of all of us. Now we are progressing on these Sunday mornings through the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament and discovering a truly amazing account of the early church's growth. And we have seen through our studies on many Sunday mornings together the growth of the church, as it were, en masse, in great numbers, men and women, and doubtless boys and girls also, being drawn to faith in the only Redeemer of God's chosen people, the Lord Jesus, as the gospel spread so rapidly through the Roman world of the Apostle Paul's day. Yet one of the choice themes in the Acts of the Apostles, and one that has not generally been before us so far in this th series of studies, is not simply how the church grew at large, but the accounts alongside those other of individual conversions to Christ as well. In their amazing diversity, they come before us now from different circumstances and diverse backgrounds, from different cultures and social status, one after another is brought before us in some of the remaining chapters of the book of Acts as men and women and young people remarkably converted to Christ. Now, of course, so far there have been a few instances of these. Paul in Acts 9, the Jewish rabbi, Cornelius, 
the Roman centurion, brought into the kingdom of God out of pagan darkness. In Acts chapter 10, the Ethiopian eunuch brought to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 9. But today, we have reached a choice chapter of the book of Acts, where in the compass of only a few verses, succeeding one another so that they almost tumble over one another, we have no less than three choice individual conversions to the Lord Jesus. Now, as we look at these three conversions on these coming Sunday mornings, the first of them today, the conversion of Lydia, I believe the Holy Spirit in his providence has brought us to this point in order that we might stand and take stock. And the question before us this morning as I preach on the conversion of Lydia is not simply, beloved, how did the Lord bring this gracious woman into the kingdom of God? But the question is, have I been brought into the kingdom of God in a similar way? And on these forthcoming two Sunday mornings, as we look at the conversion of the slave girl and the Philippian jailer, the same question stands before us. There was grace to these sinners. Is there grace? Has there been the grace and power of God extended to me? And it is a beautiful and scriptural opportunity for you to examine your Christian experience in the light of Scripture to see if it is real and bears the marks of biblical genuineness upon it. God would have us, beloved, know how the good seed of the gospel began to flourish in the pagan city of Philippi. And he would have us examine whether that good seed has in fact sprung up in our own hearts and lives. Now then, this morning, as we look at these very short verses, just four of them, verses 11 through 15, what a wealth of teaching is there that would almost require not one Lord's Day morning, but two Lord's Day mornings to deal with it with any adequacy at all. How did this lovely Lady Lydia become a professing believer in the Lord Jesus. She became such, first of all, because it was purposed in God's providence. Now, I need you this morning to have your Bible open as usual and to look at the passage and the preceding verses with me, because what we need to bear in mind as we come to this first division of the text this morning is that in verses 6 through 12, and again in verse 14, there is the account of how Lydia came to Christ because it was purposed in God's amazing and remarkable providence. Now, let me ask you a question as we begin to look at this. Is any conversion to Christ accomplished effortlessly? I think you would say from your own Christian experience that the answer is always and everywhere, no, behind the leading of the Holy Spirit 
in a soul that is being prepared to come to Christ. There are great works going on, often unseen by others, sometimes not even fully recognized by those who are being led in the way to a place where they will embrace the Lord Jesus in faith as their Lord and Savior. When you think of Paul's description of conversion in Ephesians 2, as he says that you also were dead in trespasses and sins and far off from the covenants of promise and living under the power of him who rules the darkness of this world, Coming to Christ is never easy, is never effortless, but is always the result of a prevenient work of God's grace, a work that goes on before the conversion actually takes place. The events of God's providence happening in your life and in mine. Now, will you look with me for a moment how this happened. Here is the problem. A lady Lydia. Here is Paul, the great ambassador of the gospel at large, the one who has the answer to the questing spirit of this woman as she seeks evidently a true and living faith in the living God. The problem is, how shall we bring the two together that she may hear the word that will set her gloriously free? And the answer is in two things as God purposes through his providence to accomplish this. First of all, in the circumstances surrounding Paul's own mission in verses 6 through 12. Now surely this is one of the most amazing things that simply leaps out of the pages of scripture at us as we read those verses. Here is Paul on one side of the Aegean Sea, as we saw last Sunday morning, in the subcontinent of Asia Minor. And here is Lydia, across the Aegean Sea, in the other continent of Europe, in the land of Greece, in the northern Greek city of Philippi. And how shall the twain ever meet? And in answer to that question, there occurs a most amazing train of events. Now, we saw these last Sunday morning, but let me refresh your mind just quickly again. Paul was on his second missionary journey. He was seeking to build up and consolidate the growing churches of Asia Minor in the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, as he ministered the word, until finally, as you read in verse 5 of Acts 16, there was no more work for the great apostle and his companions to do there anymore. The churches, said Luke, were growing, both inwardly, spiritually being strengthened, and outwardly were being added to in numbers every day. And the great apostle, you remember, lifted up his eyes, as it were, and looked to the regions beyond, the teeming multitudes who were still without the knowledge of the true gospel. And he attempts to set forward into these regions the teeming populous cities of the Roman province of Asia 
to the southwest, the great city of Ephesus, beyond it, the equally great city of Colossae. But as he sets out on that journey, the Holy Spirit forbids him to go there. And he turns very naturally, you remember, to the north, to the Roman province of Bithynia, a more forbidding place that skirts the coasts of the Black Sea. And again the Spirit of Jesus suffered them not to go there. And it was evident that the great commander of the church on earth, the Holy Spirit, in his evangelistic strategy, had his eye set, as it were, on richer fields than these. And as one of the commentators on this passage says, Paul wended his way across Asia Minor from the southeast corner up to the northwest corner, and he was prevented from preaching the gospel anywhere. And if you had been in that small apostolic company, you must have felt that Paul's evangelistic plans were simply in tatters. But what then happened was so remarkable, wasn't it? As he traveled with Silas and young Timothy and evidently the writer of Acts who had joined them now, the physician, the doctor Luke, as he had been forbidden and prohibited from going there and there, now he was redirected. And coming down to the ancient seaport of Troy on the coast of the blue waters of the Aegean, in a night vision he saw a man of Macedonia standing and beseeching him, come over to Macedonia, to northern Greece, and help us. Now, his identity is unknown to us and not revealed in the vision, and it's unimportant anyway, whoever this man of Macedonia was, because clearly he is a symbolic figure representing a people who required to be helped, who were perishing, in other words, for lack of a knowledge of God's truth, a field that was white unto harvest, awaited the apostolic labors. And this vision, you remember, from across the blue waters, the sparkling waters of the Aegean Sea, led to a most remarkable event. The sudden leap, unpremeditated in the apostle's mind, from the coast of the continent now of Asia, over to the continent of Europe. A sea journey of 150 miles that was interrupted, as we read, as they stopped in the middle of the Aegean Sea on the island of Samothrace that thrusts its mountainous peaks 5,000 feet up into the blue Aegean sky. And on then to land at Neapolis, the new city, its name means, on the shores of the continent of Europe as a result of the heavenly vision. Now, beloved, do you see what I'm saying to you? Thus began one of the most momentous missionary journeys in all the annals of the Christian church. And what we are seeing here is God's sovereign providence at work to bring the apostolic band 
to the pagan city of Philippi in northern Greece. And there on that historic site where battles had been fought, a city whose name formerly was called the Fountains because of the richness and abundance of fresh spring water in and around it, a city famed because in its environs there were until recently the gold mines of Pangaion that provided much of the currency in the ancient Roman world, there in that city God's providence had sovereignly chosen a woman to hear and believe and be the first recorded convert for the Christian gospel in the continent of Europe. One, a woman, Lydia. And God's providence was behind it all. But you see, the second strand in God's providence is this, as you look at verse 14. The circumstances surrounding now, not Paul's mission, but Lydia's background. And you read there in verse 14, just in the compass of one short verse of Scripture, all that we know about this important lady, yet every single word of it is vital in the scriptural record. She was, you notice, for one thing, a seller of purple garment or a dealer in purple cloth, as the New International Version quite accurately renders it. Now, quite clearly, she was a businesswoman, as we would say, and a woman, I suggest to you, of very considerable wealth. Why? Well, this is shown by her trade. She dealt in purple cloth. And we know from ancient studies that that purple cloth was famous. And the people who lived in Thyatira, the city from which she came, the Lydians, were famous in the ancient world for the process by which they extracted the expensive dye drop by drop from a particular shellfish, the murex shellfish. It had to be extracted as it was secreted drop by drop. And from it, the famous purple dye was made. And it was a very lucrative trade. And only those who were very wealthy in the ancient world could afford to be in it. And many of the clients of this lady, very evidently too, were from the upper class in Philippi. The well-to-do, the wealthy citizens, the women of Philippi, came into her salon to trade there in these garments dyed with the imperial purple. Now clearly, as I say then, she was a businesswoman, and a woman with energy enough in the pursuit of her business to leave the distant mountains of Thyatira way to the east in Asia Minor and traverse both sea and land to set up her business in the Greek city of Philippi, where the Lord was planning in his providence to meet with her. But then you read of her that she came from that city in Thyatira. In other words, she was not a native citizen of Philippi. She was, as we would say today, an emigre, as I am. I hope a legal resident alien in the United States 
of America. Now, isn't it remarkable that in the providence of God, he brought this woman across land and sea, who was not a native of that place, nor of that culture, in order that she might be brought to Christ. And what is very interesting, my dear friends, is this, that Thyatira lay in that region of the Roman province of Asia, concerning which the Holy Spirit had just said to the Apostle Paul, don't go in there. And God had brought her by his providence, a member of that culture of Asia to Philippi, to hear his word. So that behind whatever monetary or economic factors may have brought her to Philippi, she thought it was a good business opportunity, as we would say today. Whatever other factors operated, evidently unknown to her at that time, was the unseen, overarching providence of the sovereign God that was able to put her in the very place and at the very time and in the very way whereby she would hear the word of life, surely, indeed, the hand of God. Now do you see what I'm saying to you? That behind her conversion was the purpose of Almighty God. Look into your own life this morning. Do you not see, if you are a professing Christian here, the very same marks and lineaments in your own Christian life? In a sense, you can say, as you think of this, that your conversion to Christ began before it began. In other words, there was a prevenient work of God's grace, a work going on beforehand, before ever you came to that decisive moment where your eyes were enlightened and your heart was renewed and you were enabled to believe upon the Lord Jesus, look back and think of those circumstances that he directed, all unknown to you. The ordering of those events that you took to be so natural but brought you sovereignly into the very place of God's appointment and put you finally at the very time when his word and spirit would deal effectually with you. Isn't that your experience? Beloved, do we not rejoice in this congregation on occasion when we sing hymn 397 from the Trinity hymnal that says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst stretch forth thine hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-tossed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. It was purposed in the sovereign almighty providence of God that Lydia would come to Christ. Now the second thing that we need to look at in this passage is surely this, and again it leaps out at us from the written page of Scripture. 
that here was a soul who was prepared by Paul's preaching. Now, let me again ask you a question. If you had been part of that little apostolic band that followed with Paul and you had seen the way in which God, the Holy Spirit, had so remarkably led you, he had said to you, don't go into this area, nor go into that one to the north, and so had guided them finally westward, and there one night in a vision had appeared to their leader, or rather, a man had appeared in a vision, and had said to them, come over and help us. If all this had happened to you in God's remarkable leading, what would your expectation have been when you arrived at the place of God's appointing? When you came to that Roman colony and great city of Philippi, where Romans thronged its streets, and the Roman magistrates, lictors in their splendid robes, walked up and down the thoroughfares, would you not have expected some kind of fanfare to greet you? Would you have not expected some thronging crowd of hearers to listen with eagerness to the preaching of God's word? Was it not God the Holy Ghost who so signally had led us here? Would you not have expected the church to be built in a day after the Holy Ghost had made his will known so clearly? And what do you see instead? A woman. One woman. And later, a demon-possessed slave girl that caused a lot of trouble for the apostolic band and a visit that ended up with a brutal beating and imprisonment. That's what awaited them in Philippi. But you see, the Holy Spirit, unlike them, was sure about what he was doing. He knew what was going to happen. And so you have now the second ingredient in Lydia's remarkable conversion. Not only the providence of a sovereign God, but the preaching of a dedicated apostle. And I want you to consider with me again just two things out of a number that we could consider. But there was the soil prepared, and then there was the seed scattered. There was the soil prepared. Do you notice there in verse 14 that Lydia was what Luke describes as a worshipper of God? Now, you can read that phrase, and it may not mean very much to you. But it is a technical phrase in the book of Acts, and it has a very specific meaning. And quite simply, it describes someone who is a Gentile, but who has been awakened spiritually, evidently by the Holy Spirit, to leave the darkness of paganism and ignorance and idolatry and to begin to join himself or herself to the outer fringe of the synagogue worship, to become, in other words, a Jew in everything but name. And why would they do this? Well, the reason was that they were awakened to all the horrors and darkness and bestiality 
of pagan worship in the first century, where the pagan gods of the Romans and the Greeks were themselves brutal and sadistic and capricious and depraved and immoral. And beloved, the God that you worship is the one whose moral character is reflected inevitably in your own life. If he is immoral, you become immoral. If he is sadistic and loves painfulness and loves to cause hurt, that's how your character will develop. And by the prevenient working of the Holy Spirit in the first century, there were many Gentiles all through the Roman Empire, whose eyes were opened to see what pagan religion was really like and to begin to detest and abhor all its horrors and bestiality and endless idolatry and to say in their conscience, a true religion cannot possibly be like that. And they looked around and they saw the Jewish faith that worshipped only one God, that had only one source of authority, the ancient scrolls of the Jewish scriptures. And they began to attend the synagogue services. And they began to delight in the purity of this God. At last, a clean God that we can worship. And they were attracted by the upright living of the Jewish people. And they began to be worshippers of God. And thus was Lydia, you see, an earnest seeker after the truth, not fully enlightened in the knowledge of the Messiah, but no longer isolated in paganism, but being drawn steadily in heart and mind and spirit to bow before Jehovah God. And so you can imagine that every Friday evening in Philippi, she shut up her shop as the pagans would never do, for every day for them was a business day. And on the Jewish Sabbath, our Saturday, she went out with that little company of other women to read the sacred scrolls of Scripture by the river Gangites outside of Philippi and to perform the ritual ablutions, the washings associated with the Jewish practices of purification. And she was still looking, and she was still hoping, and she was still searching in heart, and she was still waiting with an unquiet spirit that more light and truth might be broken open from the sacred scrolls of God's word that she could at last find rest for her own soul, even the knowledge of forgiveness of her sins. But look you, a mighty work of preparation was already going on in this woman's heart. And the soil was already being prepared. And truly, if she was not yet in the kingdom of God, like the scribe whom Jesus addressed in the Gospels, surely she was not very far from it either. The soil prepared. But you see, the other thing is that the seed was scattered, wasn't it? Look at the end of verse 13. We sat down, says Luke, and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
In other words, here is Paul, deprived of the usual platform of the pulpit of a synagogue, for there was no one synagogue in Philippi. It took ten Jewish families to establish one, and evidently there were less than ten families in the pagan city of Philippi. And so the godly women gathered that they might at least worship the Lord in the open air down by the flowing waters of the Gangites River on that memorable Sabbath day and Paul's first Sabbath on European soil. And do you see what happened? A congregation only of women were there and the four strangers appear and they are only too delighted that one of their number should open to them the ancient scrolls of God's word and expound their meaning more perfectly. And here we have the reference to the first recorded sermon preached on European soil. And there was a ready audience indeed. Do you see what happened? We can infer it from Luke's description at the end of verse 13 that Paul would have turned to the prophets and the Psalms. He would have spoken of the rich grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that was only then dimly foreseen but had now been fully revealed in the ministry of the Son of God. He would have told them in all their eagerness of how 1,500 years of sacred Jewish history had now come to its focal point in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee of Palestine and how all the types and shadows of the ancient word of God met their fulfillment in him and how all the focus of the ancient promises found their completion in the work of Jesus upon the cross. How he lived a perfect life, how he died a sacrificial death, but all the sins of God's chosen people were heaped upon him upon the cross of Calvary, and he died there an atoning death and rose again in signification that God accepted his great work and that for the guilty there is now full remission of sin and every believer in him may be justified from all the condemning power of God's most holy law. And there was Lydia, amazed, and in the midst of these other women, prepared by Paul's preaching. My friends, is it not ever so? What is your regard for preaching of God's word this morning? God uses means. And as his sovereign providence is one of them, so the solemn preaching of God's word is invariably the other. Where is the soul who has ever come into newness of life apart from reading or hearing or listening to the exposition of God's own mighty life-giving word? Prepared by Paul's preaching. But then thirdly, as I begin to close this morning, 
the final strand comes into play. Not only preparation in God's providence and preparation in God's, in Paul's preaching, but persuasion by God's power. If you read with me at the end of verse 14, it was the Lord who opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now we've seen that if she was not already in the kingdom, certainly she was not very far from it. And the Lord was now about to lead her in a wonderfully gracious and calm and quiet way into the position that he longed for her to be in. And do you see how he accomplished it? We read that as she continued to hear the Lord opened her heart. Because the tense of the Greek verb to hear is in the present continuous tense. And I think we're to understand from that that it was not just one Sabbath day's exposition that led to this woman's conversion to Christ, but several Sabbath day's expositions as these women continued to meet by the flowing waters of that river outside of Philippi, and as Paul continued to expound the truth of God's word, and as she continued to hear with intentness and to listen to the preached and proclaimed word of God, gradually there was an understanding of the apostolic message. And as she listened, gracious things began to happen. The one who had directed and redirected Paul, the one who had brought her across land and sea, prepared her heart to be opened to the shining rays of the sun of God's word. It was unhurried. It was bona fide in good faith that she took a foothold in faith upon the Lord Jesus. And he began to open that heart of hers as her objections were answered, as her questions found a reasoned response to them, as the darkness of remaining ignorance in her mind was dispelled, and as the Lord as it were, switched on a light in her understanding and made things to be seen that she had never seen before. And as her weakness and her sinfulness was removed by a work of inward grace and she was enabled to cast herself in body and soul upon the only Redeemer of God's elect who sent to her, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now listen. The Lord opened her heart. And without the Lord opening her heart, there is never any profit in hearing or listening to the word of God. There is never any possibility of coming to Christ in the first place. Do you realize that? It's not what I do. It's not what I bring to the preaching of the gospel that enables me to be turned from darkness into light. 
but what God brings to the preaching of the gospel. Do you remember the definition of faith in the Shorter Catechism? Question 86, what is faith in Christ? Faith in Christ is a saving grace by which we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And so gently did the Lord carry on his work in her heart But as the seed of God's word fell into that prepared soil, it sprang up to eternal life. Gently and quietly, he opened her heart. It took an earthquake to open the jailer's heart. But such opening of the heart from whatever source it comes is always and everywhere the necessary beginning of a work of grace. My friend, do you realize that? So as I finish this morning, and time fails me to continue, what are we to rest in in this passage? That conversion is purposed in God's providence. That conversion is prepared by apostolic preaching. That conversion is possible by the persuasion that is brought through God's power. And oh, the blessed result in this case of that night vision in the little port city of Troas, the blessed result of the leading of God's providence for Lydia and for Paul and his companions was the first happy fruit of a recorded conversion on European soil. The first memorable Sabbath in Europe. The first ever memorable Sabbath day service upon European soil. The first of a noble succession of godly women in the world of Europe who have welcomed the Lord Jesus as their sovereign and as their spouse. She believed. She was baptized with all her household, as we heard already this morning. So sure was she of that work of saving grace that had taken its place upon her heart that she beseeched the apostles to come and be her guests. And so not only herself, but all that she was and all that she had now belonged to the Lord. Is that your condition this morning? Have you come in that way? Is God directing you even to this congregation this morning that your unquiet spirit, that your questing mind, that your unsettled heart might come by the way of the cross to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, my friend, I trust that that is his purpose for you. And for those of us who are already in Christ, let us take this incident and this passage and test the reality and genuineness of our conversion by the example of a biblical conversion recorded in the very pages of Scripture itself. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we bless you this morning for these individual accounts of the Holy Ghost's work in regeneration and pray that indeed they may both comfort us and challenge us as we, by God's grace, examine too the state of our own hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.